we understand um, that there are two parts to a healing process. One has to be your quote unquote diagnosis. Someone has to assess what the problem is. And then the, the story about the injury has to be told. You're listening to PEN America's Works of Justice podcast. I'm Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 50 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on incarceration, advocacy, and justice in the United States. In this episode, I speak with Lisa Biggs about her book, The Healing Stage, Black Women, Incarceration, and the Art of Transformation, an ethnographic study of four performance ensembles of currently and formerly incarcerated women. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today to talk about your new book. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for the opportunity to to speak with you and all the listeners. Yes, of course. I'm really excited um, to have you on and talk about your work and how this book came to be. I got so excited when I was reading it because I felt like I can just give it to so many people and they can connect with it in some way. And so it was really just an engaging read. And so I'm really happy to have you on, um, especially later in the season, because the book draws on so much of the work and topics that we've been um, talking about throughout the second season this year. So I think your book just came at the right time. Thank you so much. I, you know, writing it, it, it took, a, it took a many years to write it, many years to research it. And throughout, I mean, it's an academic book, Ohio State University Press, but um, the healing stage, you know, I always thought of it as my, the first audience really being the women who I met behind bars mm-hmm. and the theater practitioners who walked with them on that, that journey uh, to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm so happy to hear that you feel it's the kind of work that, um, you know, that, that many, many readers could pick up and yeah. enjoy. So can we start by you telling us a bit more about the book, a brief synopsis, if you will? Absolutely. So The Healing Stage, Black Women, Incarceration, and the Art of Transformation. It's a a book about theater programs for women who are behind bars. And there are four primary case studies, so um, three in the U.S. and one in Johannesburg, South Africa. I look at two jail programs and two prison programs. And I went to all these sites. I had varying degrees of access depending on the facility. So um, in one case study, and I should say that I always use pseudonyms um, to address the participants in the programs because the people who I met um, are living and they um, there's a terrible stigma associated with imprisonment and incarceration. So to protect their identities, I use pseudonyms throughout the book. But the um, depending on kind of the range of my access, I, I write about spending what amounted to be like a year and a half in one facility, going to weekly drama classes with a facilitator, or in some cases, getting to see the one and only performance of a, of a show that had been built by a a drama club that had been up in operation for more than 20 years. 
And so the book weaves together my observations. I'm an ethnographer with uh, the women's uh, performances, with their uh, writings, with interviews. And there's a couple chapters that are about the doing ethnography with people behind bars. And then I, uh, a brief history of the incarceration of Black women in the United States, since the majority of my chapters are about uh, women in the United States. And even the South Africa chapter has a, a direct U.S. tie. I followed a woman named Rodessa Jones, who's perhaps the best well-known practitioner of theater for incarcerated women. She's based in San Francisco, and with her organization, Cultural Odyssey, she many, many years ago in the 80s started a theater program for women in their um, San Francisco County Jail. Uh, but she's taken her practices to facilities around the world. And uh, folks in South Africa in 2007, 2008, invited her to come and to replicate some aspects of that program in Johannesburg at the female center. They call it the female center for excellence with, with no irony. Um, lo locally, it is known though as Sun City. And so the, um, yeah, the book is about working in South Africa and then at three sites in the United States, one that's in the Midwest, one that's in the Mid-Atlantic, and one that's in the Gulf Coast. So in the book, you talked a bit about your approach. This is an ethnography. As you're with these different theater groups um, and going with these different organizations, you give us a bit about your history at times. I was really interested throughout my whole read to learn more about your background in theater as a theater artist. Um, so first, I thought maybe we can talk about that and then get into what led you to this project. Okay. Yep. I'm a theater kid. I grew up on the South side of Chicago and I was a very, very shy kid. Very, very shy. Uh, but somewhere around sixth or seventh grade, me and a friend double dog dared ourselves to um, audition for like the sixth grade play. And um, long story short, I was a really an ensemble member but they had to do some understudy casting. And so I got cast as an understudy and the person who was supposed to go on got mono two weeks before the show was supposed to open. So the um, director came to me and said, Lisa, can you do it? And I was like, I, I guess I'm going to. So <laughs> <laughs> it was the Diary of Adam and Eve. That was our mm -hmm. play. And uh, there were four Eves because we had split the role. And I became the fourth Eve. I stepped on stage and I remember um, saying my maybe my first couple of lines. And then I dropped into a state of flow. And then I remember the end of the play and basically nothing in between. Wow. But I had in the doing of it, I had this incredible sense of like wholeness and that I was seen and heard and that I was present and stepping into myself in a way that I didn't feel was possible in other parts of my 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 life, you know, as a 12 or 13 year old. And so many years later, in my late 20s, I got a chance to work as a at a theater company called The Living Stage. And it was part of Arena Stage in Washington, DC. It was the, I guess we would call it the community engagement arm, but it was really a radical theater. We had our own space, the corner of 14th and T Northwest. And we invited people into our space to tell their own stories and to use improvisational theater as the mechanism to do that. 
but um, with embedded in those invitations was our understanding that black and brown people and immigrants, working class people and the poor, those were our primary constituents, that they had genius and they had knowledge of cultural practices, song, music, dance, poetry, storytelling that um, were not often appreciated by the rest of our society. And um, and so the the lessons that I learned at Living Stage under the the directorship then of uh, a man named Oren Sandel and um, a, associate artist of that program, Rebecca Rice, have sat with me for uh, the rest of my career, really. And so um, when I stumbled upon the work of a, a group through Living Stage um, that was working with um, women who were involved in the criminal legal system. They were a group of women who were in a comprehensive drug and alcohol recovery program. Um, I mean, I could not have imagined at the time that that those encounters as a basically an assistant teaching artist at that point um, would propel me in this direction, but I learned so much from them. Uh, they would always say that we taught them a lot, but uh, I learned really so, so very much from them about the, um, how to name the experiences that I and other young black women were having in the 90s, in the early in uh, early 2000s, um, I, I never forgot them. I never forgot them. And so when I um, was a graduate student at Northwestern, decided that I wanted to write about theater as a transformational or healing practice, I went back to them. I found a group of them who had stabilized in um, in recovery and now taught, it turned out many of the exercises that um, we used to teach them, they now taught it at their local local, um, local jail. I guess that's some of the how I yeah. got to this. <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah, I'm thinking about that last chapter when you go back to DC and you're talking to those women and now they're leading the classroom. Well, I like a lot of theater people describe the work as healing or transformative. And, um, but when I started this work, I realized that I didn't quite understand what the women behind bars meant by healing. Um, I think I thought of the criminal legal system that the problems of the system, that it, the problems that the, the legal system, you know, allegedly is solving has to do is supposed to do with like um, human conflicts and um, homelessness, uh, problematic substance use, you know, poverty and theater does not end poverty. I mean, come on, theater people, <laughs> theater people, we don't make like five grand a year. Like, come on, <laughs> like theater, becoming a theater artist is not going to end poverty. Um, not of the whole. Um nor is it a like an effective, you know, and long-lasting solution for problematic substance use. Right, it's not. And so I had a lot to learn about what they understood as healing, um, and they really taught me the spaces uh, over the course of the ten plus years that I was doing this field work. That um, their idea of healing was much, much broader than than the one that I had um, started with that they were not looking for cures to poverty. They're not looking for cures or quick fixes to, to anything, but instead to 
creating those spaces where women who are struggling with a myriad number of things, incarceration being the space where we, we meet people, but where they can begin to do the work of self-repair on their own terms and in a way that vastly exceeds the expectations of the state and their ideas about rehab, which is, you know, basically um, Ashley Lucas, who's a colleague of mine at University of Michigan, she says that prison rehab in the United States is basically, you know, we want people to um, confess to what they did, express remorse, and then behave, comply with officers' orders. And that has also nothing to do with addressing poverty or homelessness yeah. or human conflict. So, um, so those are some of the, the spaces that the work came from my personal experiences as an artist, these questions that I had um, emerging from that work, and then a real desire to try and understand how folks, uh, overwhelmingly Black women, were, were doing this healing work and using performance as a, a mechanism for it um, and what they wanted out of the work. So, wow, thank you. That answered both questions, from the living stage to the healing stage. The living stage <laughs> to the healing stage, there you go, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, that's great. Yeah. So you started doing this work as a graduate student when you were at um, Northwestern. What was it like for you the first when you first started this project, going into prisons um, to do this work? Mm, yeah, I tell, uh, this is a really uh, funny story. Um, about my first time going to see a, uh, a prison uh, theater performance. So I'm in the Chicagoland area and I'm, you know, trying to build relationships with teaching artists who do this work. And so I, I connect with one group that works at a, um, a federal uh, lockup in the area. Uh, so they're like, come on, you know, I, I go to their, I sit down with them uh, in their office. We have some you know, like quick interviews. We kind of do a get to know you. And they're like, hey, you actually want to see the work. We're doing a show. So come on. So I get clearance to go in and I've never been behind bars. So I'm like shaking as I go. I'm overwhelmed. I'm worried I'm going to mess up because um, I don't understand how this space operates. But I go in with them. We thread our way through the facility. We see a performance in this tiny, tiny library space. And it was, um, it was overwhelming being there. The, I mean, the process of going in was, was overwhelming. I had, I was really afraid, but I also deeply trusted the artists that I was working with. And um, as I watched the show, which I can't remember the name of, unfortunately, yeah, right now, but I watched the show. I realized that over the week that they had been working with this small group, maybe seven or eight women, that they had formed these deep bonds and that writing was how they had done it. Um, that it was through this process of writing that women who had stories to tell, uh, who wanted to connect with their own thoughts, they wanted to understand their histories and experiences, and to share them so that they might glean new insights and information that through a process of writing that they had created this writing community that was also a performance community. And that was a community of women who, despite all the other things that were happening in their lives, were committed to coming together to support one another. And um, that work so echoed with my experiences at Living Stage that I said, I'm going to have to, I got to figure out a way of doing this. 
So um, after the show, we all leave. And being theater artists, they're like, we want to go out and celebrate. It was a great show. So they go to this <laughs> un, um, formally speakeasy uh, bar in downtown Chicago. And um, there's a karaoke night. And it turns out that these artists are not only, you know, writers, they're playwrights, they teach theater, but they're also like karaoke wannabe stars. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, um, one of the, the people who's facilitating a, a, a program that I, I might be able to study at the site that I call Midwestern in the jail, they are an incredible singer. Uh, I give them the pseudonym Aaron in the, in the book. And Aaron... As a white guy, 20-something, um, from the Midwest, blonde hair, blue eyed, the sweetest, most loving uh, 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 performer you could think of. Um, but he actually has a, a potty mouth and a, and a <laughs> does a hell of a rendition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally a potty mouth. Um, young gay man living living this best life <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> and he has, it turns out he has a, a drag persona. And in his drag persona, he often does Proud Mary. And so karaoke, not you, you know, come on. That was an invitation that was just too amazing. So Aaron hops on stage, starts doing his rendition of Proud Mary, and he com compels me and the um, artistic director of the theater to come up on stage. And we, I find myself moments after meeting these people as like Tina Turner wannabe backup singer, and the the performance ends with me doing a still legendary log roll down the stage. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and by the end of it, they're all falling out laughing. You know, he's, uh, uh, I have not thankfully distracted too much from his performance of Proud Mary. And we all became from that um, fast friends. And I, I write about that story because, you know, I felt in the moment that it was important that I show them not only that I was willing to walk with them through the prison system, but that I understood them as performers and that I too am a, a performer and a call and a the kind of performer that I'm not trying to steal the limelight from you. I want to uplift what you are doing. Uh, I think some of the best ethno ethnographic field work with especially marginalized communities has to do that. That has to be part of the mission. Otherwise, we're doing the same nasty, you know, early 20th century anthropological um, ethnography that really is, is designed to extract information from communities in order to make people's careers or to, you know, make it easier for corporations or uh, states to come in and exploit their labor, their genius and the resources that they have access to. So, um, so yeah, I, um, I totally made a fool out of myself, but I was in, so... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, and then... I read that you, throughout um, the chapters, the links that you go to through to um, connect with not only the women who are in prison, but also the people that are taking you in to their program, because you are, at that point, I guess, a representation of, of their program, but you also rely on them, I think, doing this work with an objective in mind, but also being open to learning, like what the learning experience was and being very open and honest. So did you have any difficulty or challenges um, going in as an outsider who, I mean, these are very vulnerable spaces and um, just reading the testimonies that are 
query throughout the chapters that that um, and we were talking about trust and vulnerability just at PEN America amongst my team. I think um, two days ago we visited a class at Hamilton College and virtually and someone asked a question about vulnerability and we're a writing program. So one of my colleagues talked about it through the lens of writing and I talked about it through the lens of reading writing that felt very vulnerable and how um, what it required of me, me to do that. And so I was just curious what what your experiences were being introduced to um, participants and programs in these spaces. Um, did you have any any challenges or things that you had to be aware of, you learned that you had to be aware of that you didn't think about before? Hmm. Oh, no, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I'll say that part of my methodology, so in, in picking the, the groups that I wanted to to learn from, I picked organizations that already had long relationships with facilities. So places that had been um, continuously op offering workshops for more than 10 years. So that said to me that the program facilitators were very knowledgeable and sophisticated about the rules and regulations of the facilities, that they had built relationships with the wardens and the corrections officers, that they knew what the rules were and that they adhere to them well enough. So, uh, but they also, their, their long relationships also signaled to me that they were meeting a, a deep need that the incarcerated women themselves had, because no program is going to be successful if the participants don't value it, enjoy it, think it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. The fact that all these places had managed to maintain these long relationships said to me, okay, these people are really mm -hmm. experts in doing this. But, um, in terms of your question about um, trust and vulnerability, so yeah, these were these were trusted in programs, um, and but to build rapport and trust with those constituents myself was a different project. So um, I, early in the book, I write about one of the first you know uh, volunteer orientation programs I went to that I was handed a list of things that I do's and don'ts. And they're everything from, you know, don't don't touch an inmate. And then they call people inmates, um, which I have problems with, but this is their language. So don't touch the inmates. Don't give them anything. Don't tell them your real name, your address, your phone number, on and on and on and on. And so I, you know, I took those things seriously, but I realized as time went on that there were going to be more inflection moments in which I was going to have to break those rules. And that um, because I was the, student researcher and not the person who was responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of the program that I could I was in a position to do so selectively in a way that the facilitators were not sometimes so there's um, one story I tell about Aaron same you know person the, the fabulous karaoke singer um, we, we're in a workshop and we're reading um, some stories about people who have um, su survived terrible abuse and um, he's deeply moved by this story, begins to cry. A bunch of people begin to cry in workshop. And I realized, like, I mean, we're all there, like, you know, it's not as flowing. And I realized that I, in my pocket, inadvertently have some tissue, which is totally contraband. But I reach in my pocket and I hand this tissue around. Um, and they're surprised I have it. I'm surprised I have it. But in moments like that of, of just um, reacting just like a, a human being to other people's needs, 
um, demonstrated to the women that I was a human being who was going to show up with them. That that's why I was there, not to take something away from them, and certainly not to tell them their business or that they shoulda, woulda, coulda, oughta have done. Um, I that I really wanted to be uh, to support them in the work that they were seeking to do, and so that meant yeah, handing over a piece of tissue every now and again. It meant um, it meant deep listening. It meant affirming their ability to write. And, you know, in, in cases when the hard stories about surviving domestic violence and sexual assault did arise, it meant being one of the people who said to them I, that I believed them yeah. and that it should not have happened, that the violence that they endured ha- should not have happened. And um, that may seem like a very small thing, but women behind bars are overwhelmingly like 80, 90% survivors of domestic violence and of sexual assaults that occurred when they were children, often um, before they turned 13. So these are the people who we have incarcerated, right? And they are folks who no one has believed. Uh, If they told, no one believed them, or if their family or whoever they revealed to was un, uh, did believe them, they were still often unable to marshal the kinds of like therapeutic or healing support that they needed in order to, um, to heal. So be it that mental health care or being able to go to like a, 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 a loving and supportive like counseling service or religious program or institution, whatever, like these, these are the people who didn't get it. These, these are the root causes of their problematic substance use issues. So like they are really trying to heal a pain and, um, and sitting in workshop with women as they told these stories and they told them, I came to understand because they were killing them. They, um, you know, I think Maya Angelou says like, there's just, there's nothing worse than like a, a story that you cannot tell. I'm doing a terrible job of quoting her. Sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing worse than like this story that, that, that is, that you cannot share with the world. Um, you know, what they needed from me is to be, um, is to listen and to show up and to believe them because, and to, um, all, and to, to be present with them. And that in and of itself was a, a moment of healing for them because it interrupted the, the other modes or, um, that they had experienced from people of dismissal and erasure or blame right? We're not trained social workers. We're not trained therapists. We are theater people. And we're really interested in the causes of human conflict and their resolution and the heart. Um, you know, me and, and Aaron or me and Redessa Jones, and other people, like we listened and we interrupted those scripts of shame by affirming the, that they mattered. And that did require me to be vulnerable but I met them in their vulnerability. And so the theater space, I mean, we learned with time, I learned with time that it was one of those few spaces behind bars in which women who wanted to to do this kind of work could do it and not be shamed and not get the woulda, shoulda, coulda script um, thrown back in their faces. Um. I noticed you said healing a lot in there. And so I, I really want to go into that, into that space now and just talk about some of 
the actual work that you did and some of the plays that you worked on. You included some excerpts of scripts at moments, which I enjoy as a writer, as a theater person. Um, and, and it really gave some life to the actual material that these people were making. Like this is not just a group you come and you discuss, they're creating artwork together, which is so such for to, for prison to be a place where you can't touch people, it limits um, relationships both inside and outside prison. And so having someone, like you said, like just listen to them um, and to be affirmed by another person, that definitely is a lot. And then I can only just imagine making things with other people who you live with in a place where you can't engage with people like in intimate ways, publicly at least. Um, and also noted what you said about the tissue, how you had it, it was contraband. And you just, you made that decision in that moment to like pass that out. And that's decision that women in prison have to make every day. People in prison every day have to make those decisions that, you know, could be life or death sometimes, depending on what it is. Um, and so, yeah, the plays really, I just really love that you included those in there as artifacts of this is what was created because sometimes those scripts aren't published. Um, sometimes they women can't take them with them when they go home. They probably can't even have them with them in prison in their cell and their bunk. And so I think you were also doing that work of um, preserving things that they made themselves. And so I, I really like to see that. And so let's talk a bit about some of those plays. I do want to get to the chapter on the pink dress. So maybe we'll we'll get there in a moment. But maybe we can maybe you can point to one of the plays or project in which you saw um transformations of healing or maybe it was like the first time that you realized what was going on. Maybe you had your own notions about healing before going in and and you learn to think about it in a different way. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, no, thank you for that. I definitely had different ideas about healing when I went in. I think I had more of a Western medical, you know, we're seeking a cure for something, a fix. And in working with these folks, you know, what I realized is that, you know, healing is definitely a practice of self-repair. Um, which maybe is not, you know, groundbreaking for others, but <laughs> I grew, definitely came to the work initially thinking about, okay, if I'm, you know, have an injury, if I've broken a toe or something, then I'm going to a medical professional who will tell me what I need to do. And, you know, I've broken a toe. And so I remember what happened that they basically said to me, you know, be careful for the next several weeks until it, it heals. Um, but in, in, learning more about African-American folk healing ways, I realized that, um, you know, healing, it is a practice of self-repair, but it is none that is never absent from community. We understand um, that there are two parts to a healing process. One has to be your quote unquote diagnosis. Someone has to assess what the problem is. And then the, the story about the injury has to be told. So some kind of, some people might call this a prescription in, in some, in a Western kind of medical sense, but from what I understand and the writing of Stephanie Mitchum was really important to me in this, that um, the story has to be kind of um, told, mm -hmm. literally told, it has to be done in the world. That's what I saw women behind bars 
doing. Um, but they, you know, they're super sophisticated. They know that they're under a mode of surveillance at all times. And so how you tell the story about what's important to you, what needs to be repaired, is has to be very sophisticated. Um, you know, the, the theater practitioners, they create a whole space for that storytelling to happen. Because um, women can't get together behind bars to do this work without them. People come in with ideas and agenda um, or the story that is so pressing on their heart that even if the prompt is like butterflies in a meadow, take two minutes and do a free write about it, um, the story about surviving something um, will arise. And so um, what I realized is in listening to those stories is that first and foremost, that yeah, those stories were killing them and they wanted us to listen to understand and that uh, that being seen, heard and understood created a space of relief in the body for them. And it shifted people's narrative understanding of themselves and each other. Everybody who's behind bars, honestly, you asked me a while ago, I think, you know, did I have any fears or misguided guide, uh, mis misgivings? I mean, I, of course I did. I didn't know who I was in the room with and anybody who, you know, even pays halfway attention to the news media or social media knows that we tell this story that people behind bars are dangerous. They're to be feared. And they're terrible. People who have done something wrong. Right. And I met these women who I swear to God, they look just like my, my grandmother, my cousins, people I had grown up with. And so of course, in my mind were these thoughts like, what did they do? Why are they mm -hmm. behind bars? Am I safe? And it turns out they were thinking that about each other. So, <laughs> so we were all in the room with these thoughts. But the process of storytelling, um, we shift the narrative and we realize that we have much more in common than we than we might have thought. Um, however, we all got to this prison theater workshop. Um, we all actually have a bunch in common. And um, and so Healing, I realized in there and um, that, that I had a very narrow definition of healing, that healing um, can be something as simple as um, shifting a narrative about people so that you have new perspective on the past or the present or the person in front of you, that healing can be sometimes like um, if a, a pain or a sore or an injury is too, too, too terrible to touch, that it can be a way of providing a bridge. So like we never ask people to give us all the, the raw details about what they survive. And the way trauma memory operates anyway, that's really not possible because the brain needs to protect itself from those memories so you can survive. So, but that in the storytelling artistic process, creating song, dance, jokes about these things, about their lives that we could create bridges over those wounds. Mm -hmm. And then also that sometimes, you know, that healing, this didn't happen so often in the spaces that I worked, but sometimes healing arrives in like unexpected forms. So what I, I learned with the women is that there's just all these other ways of thinking about, about healing, that it's not just about a cure, but that people have to do reparative work for themselves. And that um, Black expressive cultural practices like song and dance, and the reason I raise this is because the overwhelming majority of the people behind bars, period, um, are um, Black and brown folks, Black people. And uh, the sites where I went to, overwhelmingly Black women. 
they brought that deep cultural knowledge to the work. Um, and um, they told stories, they wrote song, they, dancing is technically a, um, a violation behind bars, but you can, you can do it selectively. So <laughs> they brought a little dance, <laughs> you know, that um, insisted upon new ways of thinking about the past and the present uh, and did it really sophisticated sophisticated ways so, because you can't you know you can't actually directly make fun of a corrections officer that's a violation but you can signify on them meaning mm -hmm. that you can um you can poke fun at them through indirection so especially in a, in a fun joking way so um and everybody gets it <laughs> <So>. <laughs> i mean what you just described of these women voicing their experiences engaging with difficult memory i mean as much as they wanted to and how those things were a form of healing. But it was also in reading you, you bring in witnessing, you do bring in signify, like you bring in these terms and define what they mean. And they're all at play while these women are on stage. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering if, if you can talk a bit about those elements. You talked a bit about signifying, um, how I think about signifying sometimes is a call and response, which is a form of signifying um, in Black culture. But then there's witnessing, there's testifying. And within that discussion of those terms, if the women themselves knew that these things were happening, if they had a language, even if it wasn't, if they weren't saying signifying or witnessing, if they had a language for what was going on in their healing, if, if they shared mm -hmm. it with you. I mean, yes, definitely. They called it healing. And it was on me to kind of unpack the kind of the, the specifics or the mechanics or the those other Black expressive cultural practices. That's because they just called it healing. Um, yeah, I mean, witnessing, you know, um, what I've described in terms of like straight up just being in workshop and uh, holding space for them to tell their stories and then affirming them, them um, and affirming and, and, and creating a practice of, of kind of... Um, with them of collective individually and collectively affirming what they said. Redessa Jones taught me a long time ago that, you know, you can try and pick apart the threads of a person's story, but why, why this is theater, right? So we, we're allowed uh, a theatrical framework and a sense mm -hmm. of play and fiction, like please fictionalize, <laughs> right? So why are we, you know, we're not asking people to confess. We're actually people to engage in storytelling and play. And so to witness the how they tell story was part of our responsibility. Testifying, though, came in. I realized in the, this group in the, the, the mid-Atlantic, um, they were a group of women who had um, stabilized in recovery. And they went back to their local jail to teach drama classes and do poetry workshops. And the woman I worked with, Lola, is her pseudonym. She was a master storyteller. So she would go in and she would run the poetry workshop. And in listening to the participants, though, she realized that they had real big questions about how they were going to stabilize in recovery when they got out. And uh, having been in that jail, she could tell them that the things that were on offer in the 90-day, you know, drug so-called drug rehabilitation unit that they were in were not going to be enough but she realized that if she was going to keep maintain her access she couldn't directly castigate the you know corrections officers and social workers who were you know selling them this story 
So instead, she she figured out ways of telling her long story of recovery through poetry and straight up storytelling. Um, and then she would end those stories with a, an invitation to um, to to connect with her and the other people in the group. Um, she's insisting that, you know, in telling a bigger truth uh, based on her position of knowledge and her experience. And um, as time has gone on, she's realized that part of the the uh, p- the opportunity that was given to her that night was also to help other people. Yeah. And this is part of how she maintains her own sobriety mm-hmm. um, by continuously giving back. And that is she could, is that is in many ways holy work for her. Yeah. I I want to um, just paint for readers. And, and that story you just told and and reading it again as you were saying it out loud, um, I'm realizing that you do, by the time we get to this point in the book, you had already gone through like a history of Black women um, and the justice system. And so in coming back to this story, Lolo's, what, what happened to Lolo, there were so many things already pitted against her before it got to that point where, and and I heard a couple of times you say her access to treatment, her access to these things. Black women, Black people, they don't have, we don't have access to a lot of things because historically they have been taken from us or not given to us. And as they, I should say, as they have been allocated to other people. And, and so Lolo's insistence, not only on, you know, being in recovery for her and her family, but also sharing that as an access point is not light work at all. It is, it's it's heavy lifting. Um, it's a it's form of labor that I'm sure she's not compensated for um, as she should be or, or at all. And so that what, what Lolo's doing in that point, um, in this point in the book is very, it's hard work, but it's useful work. Um, and it's care work, what she's doing. Um, so I just wanted to say that for readers is that there is in the beginning of the book, this history. So when you get to this point, you you can contextualize these stories, like you have a larger picture to, to in which to um, dissect and understand these testimonies and stories that, that people are sharing. Um, and so thank you for, for making those connections. Um, There's so many places we can go with limited time. Um, But I want to hear, I wanted to talk about, okay, yeah, let's go to the pink dress now. Um, Because I I do want to hear something from one of the plays. But also this chapter, this is chapter four, and this is in the Gulf Coast. This is that big water. Mm-hmm. And big water. Yeah, this is in the 2010s. And this chapter, for the most part, I just call it the queer chapter because you talk a lot about um, queerness, but also gender. I should say that queerness and gender in this women's facility. And I mean, we just don't, and at least in my work at Penn, First of all, we don't publish a lot of women, not because we don't want to, but just because, you know, of access as well. And and a lot of other 
factor. So we've been trying to do that work to connect with more women who are writing um, in prison. And so this chapter really stood out. I mean, the book stood out for that reason, but this chapter stood out because it's that intersection of queerness, gender, and Black women. Um, also, when you bring in the performance elements, um, and I think this this is maybe possibly the most, I felt really connected to this as a Black queer person, but also growing up in the early aughts when we were, I was in public school in Savannah, Georgia, and our, we had this dress code that was implemented eventually that was a response to people who had sagging pants and who were wearing loose fitting clothes. And a lot of this, from what I, I heard at the time, remembering that type of clothing or streetwear came from prison culture and then got into the school and we were in middle school. But I mean, as we know, black people are criminalized at very young ages. And so of course this came in schools. And then of course we were being um, policed for it. Me and my classmates at like 12 and 13 years old. And so experiencing that and then reading that these adult women are also being policed, um, not so much for, um, I should say, as response to blackness, but a response to gender and sexuality um, and maybe blackness as well. But those two things were, were the main things. And so this chapter really stuck out to me. And then I want you to describe the paint dress situation. I could not. Uh, believe it. But then also when you were talking about, we were talking earlier about decisions people make to, to just survive. And of course they took the pink dress to somebody who worked in some place to like fix it so that they can style it the way that they wanted to wear it. Like, of course that was going to happen. And so I, I love when moments like that occur, but I'll let you describe the situation um, in the pink dress. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad. This is one of my favorite chapters, too, um, because the ensemble had been working together for so long. And so they had these deep connections and um, had built many, many a play by the time I met them for the pink dress story um, or a play that they were called. I called the I call it beauty coming and going. But it's um, we. it has this one moment that deals with the pink dress in particular. I mean, honestly, uh, this chapter, yeah, it does definitely deals most directly with the policing of uh, gender and sexuality, but we know that uh, more 30, 40% of people who are behind bars, depending on prison or, or jail, the numbers can go up and down. Um, they self-identify as LGBTQ, uh, and it makes sense because we're, uh, as a nation, policing um, you know, people who step outside of so-called appropriate gender-based performance or, or the doing of gender. Mm -hmm. So just to put that out there. Um, but at this facility in the Gulf Coast, yeah, they got a new warden and he didn't like the way that some of the imprisoned people were wearing their uniforms, which is a oversized, you know, white t-shirt basically and a pair of jeans. Um, sometimes with like a, de a denim jacket over it, he thought they were wearing it in too masculine a fashion. So allowing their pants to sag. Now, note you're not allowed to have a belt behind bars because that's right. considered a, yeah. a weapon that uh, you could harm others with or yourself. So you don't have they don't have um, they don't have belts. So sagging and bagging is going on, 
And so he decides that he's going to punish, punish a group of them and make them behave as ladies. And he targets a group of Black lesbians who are masculine identified or masculine presenting um, in a way that I guess other people were not. It's hard to discern what his thinking was, but he, yeah, targeted them and he stripped them of their uniform and then forced them to wear what he called the pink dress, which was a, like a pink muumuu. It's like a bed sheet with a head cut out for the hole. It um, was um, somewhat translucent. So one could see person's underwear underneath and the body form. And it made them stand out in the compound of like 1200 other people who are wearing the, the, the standard uniform. And um, it was embarrassing. It was awkward to wear. It was hard to move in. And um, just as the policy was being implemented, one of the women in drama club came to regular Saturday meeting uh, rehearsal wearing it. And at first people fell out because I hadn't seen it. It was hilarious. It, um, she was really struggling in it. She was embarrassed. She was angry. And at first they laughed because they were so shocked. They couldn't imagine this masculine identified person, you know, wearing this ridiculous outfit. Um, but once they kind of, the laughter dissipated and the facilitators um, began to engage the, her in conversation, they realized that uh, what was going on that this guy was gonna use their uniform to punish them, um, to act like quote unquote ladies. Um, and they as a group quickly came to consensus that they were gonna make, they were gonna incorporate this issue into a performance piece they were already working on about beauty. And so very sophisticatedly over the next several weeks, they created five scenes in the middle of this play about the pink dress. And the, the setup is that um, there's a formerly incarcerated woman character who's looking for a job. And she goes to, first to her um, parole officer who tells her, I got this opportunity for you, but it means you're gonna have to like wear a pink dress and some, and some, um, some uh, heels, can you do that? And Starkey's the main character. And she's like, I, you know, I guess I'm just gonna have to figure it out. So doesn't feel good about that. Starkey, I should say is a masculine identified um, actor in the production. And when she steps on stage, it's immediately clear, and this is the performance that I saw, that she is like a, a rule violator in terms of the prison rules about the dress code. So she's wearing a short salt and pepper afro. She's like in her 50s. Um, she uh, is wearing um, a white uniform that with long sleeves, but it's baggy and it's sagging. And she, um, she, her, her everyday, well, I'll say that the actor was known on the compound as the Mac. So she was an out lesbian who was really a smooth talker and had successfully seduced several people. So, um, so on stage, she, then she's playing this role. So she brings all this history right to the role. And um, in a moment on stage, Starkey turns to the, she has like a soliloquy, a soliloquy or a monologue. And this is very much indebted to Maya Angelou's Phenomenal Woman poem, but She's speaking to herself in such in a way that the, the audience and some, some mannequins upstage, uh, actors playing mannequins can hear, she says, as she returns to, uh, for her, like, uh, what she hopes is a final interview. She says, hello, hello. I guess I'm early. Oh, I really need this job. I'm tired of being what everyone else wants me to be. I'm good, just as I am. Lord, why can't they just accept me for who I am? Because just as I am, because I'm proud of who I be, because God created perfection when he created me. 
They say beauty's only skin's deep. I say that's a lie. I feel beauty is love and it comes from the inside. So what my stomach isn't flat, I'm still a lady. The reason for that is because I carried not one, not two, but three babies. My hair is natural, it's mine, and I like it that way. Does it mean that I'm not a lady, a woman, because it's not down my back? My breast used to be firm, it sags now, not a perfect pick. That's all right with me, it's nothing a support bra can't fix. I've put on a few pounds, and so when I walk, I wobble. I guess I'll never be a contestant on America's Next Top Model. Society tells me I should look better because I have cellulite. When I walk, my thighs rub together. My eyes are not blue, hazel, green, or gray, but I don't need contacts to see a mile away. God made my nose the way he wanted it to be. That's why I'm not self-conscious and can smell insecurities. I'm a phenomenal woman, God's work at his best, holding my head up high and wearing beauty round my neck. When I look at myself in a mirror, I can't help but to grin because God made me perfect. He made me just as I am. And just as this last word kind of rings in the room, the mannequins, a couple of women who are standing upstage dressed as mannequins wearing like long pink ball grounds, they come to life because it's theater and they say, yes, you can do it. We believe in you. Believe in yourself. Sarki is surprised to hear this voice, but before she can figure out where it came comes from, the manager returns and says to her, um, you know, 15 years ago, I was imprisoned and somebody gave me a chance. I know what it's like to be judged before you even open your mouth. Folks stop and being your friend and you tell them that you've been incarcerated and even having your family not trusting you because they don't see you as a family member. They see you as a criminal, a convicted felon. My God is a God of second chances and I'm willing to give you a chance but I expect great things from you. Can you lift boxes and maybe stock the shipments when they come in? And Starkey says, yes, yes, I can do that. The manager says, you know, I've been thinking about our dress code. Do you have a pink t-shirt and maybe some pink pants? And Starkey says, yes, yes, I do. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that is the end of that, that sequence of five scenes in the middle of the play. And the reason I was just so blown away by it is because it addresses the the um, the uniform policy at the facility, but without pointing the finger directly at the warden. So, but the whole piece is totally signifying on his practices. Mm -hmm. So it is making fun of, it's staging a critique through indirection and through humor. These performances always take um, place first and foremost before audiences of other incarcerated women at the facility. So there's, in this case, there's like 300 people from the facility at the show, everybody knows exactly what they're talking about because they've all been subjected to the pink dress policy. They all know somebody who got stripped and put into the pink dress. And this piece carries their desire to be accepted for who they are, and but also to change society. I think what the piece is asking audiences, and especially the cars, the uh, officers and the wardens is to to refuse the kind of minimization and dehumanization that the criminal legal system is so very good at of just making snap decisions that you're just a bad girl and so you know part of the reason that you're in trouble is because you don't have good enough Christian values or like you just weren't raised right or that you you know um, you didn't get well educated and this piece really says like those metrics of, of valuing people and a certain like deciding who matter are off 
themselves. Um, this the piece really as a whole affirms the the that the uh, masculine identified women at this facility matter to everybody. And this ensemble was going to put it on the line for them. Because they come on, we also know that as much as they're signifying <laughs> all this on the warden's actions, that this is exactly also the kind of moment in the piece that he could have shut it down. Because he right, understood yeah. he could have shut it down. But I think one of the things that he learned, because he initially put that policy in fairly early in his tenure, is that prison operations, if you want it to go smoothly, then you there's some things you actually can't do. The uh, incarcerated people have tremendous power. They help constitute life behind bars. They create a culture. It is not it's essentially top down. They can he could dictate a whole bunch of stuff if he wanted to, but I mean he also quickly learned not only of their critique and their concern about this policy, but that there were a group of femme folks who like saw this as an opportunity, the pink dress policy, to get out of the the jeans and t-shirt that they had been wearing for years and years and years, and so they purposefully violated, and then they sassayed <laughs> their little selves over to the um, they made uh, mattresses at that facility, and so there were some expert seamstresses, and though they walked themselves over to the seamstress shop and their flowing hideous moo and got it tailored so that oh, wow. they could wear it <laughs> so it didn't have the it wasn't going to have the effect mm -hmm. that he intended it yeah. to have and you know of course it didn't it was a it was a silly um uh, effort to assert because like dominance in his role but the women at this facility they're so sophisticated and they know who they know who they are and yeah. they know they are they have to live behind bars and they're going to figure out a way of, of of doing it and doing it together. They don't have to all get along. That's the but the women who they targeted mattered, and they understood that um, if you let this one go, then something else is going to go. And it really mattered that people, yeah. you know, when you're locked up behind bars, there are these rules: no touching, no this, no that, the other. But that does not um, mean that those rules make any sense. Um, that they benefit yeah. anybody other than kind of making it easier for officers to control and control people. Exactly. So women's facilities have very different kind of um, cultures than the stereotypes about men's facilities. Mm -hmm. So they're not so much spaces where you, you know, hear stories about predatory rapists. It's not, you know, if there's rapists in those facilities, those are the officers. Yeah. Yeah. Though they are the officers. Um, a prison in South Florida in March it was a women's prison and just the and then they had a warden who I should say how do I say this who was more who was less conservative with um, his practices and who seemed more thoughtful in how he managed the facility and so they one of the people I talked to said that she experienced more um, freedom in the prison that she was currently in than the one she left and when they would get new COs in the prison they would try to assert their dominance and control things and the woman would have to remind them oh we don't do that here like you have to let that go um and just seeing how they talked about queerness relationships with each other was not what you would see, like to your point on mainstream media or TV and um, representations of prison, but this was a women's prison, it wasn't a, a men's prison. Um, and so seeing how they engage, I think I was thinking about that prison a lot or that my experience there when I was 
reading your book because I had some of that like knowledge just from being in a, that type of um, space. And from hearing you talk about the pink dress, that story, I'm now realizing that in addition to the healing that these women are doing in their practice of theater, also the, they're um, responding to things that are being done to them. And so it's a it's a a, a situation where they have to be um, introspective. They have to think about their own histories, their own past, and then in this current situation, and then to then speak back and voice. Um, it takes a lot, I'm sure, and and you know that's also a very it's powerful. It's um, gaining some agency back or realizing sometimes you have to be reminded that you are not what is being done to you. You are not your condition. You are not your environment. And so I'm sure that that happened a lot in, in your work of the, these moments of transformation where they realize, oh, I don't have to accept the pink dress. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. I think and that is, you've reached such, such a brilliant point that, you know, that that kind of interrupting um, other modes of thinking is part is essential to healing work as they define it, because yeah. I mean, yeah, the office, the warden, he had all the authority in the world to, you know, implement this policy and the harm that that um, that it caused. But through the performance, you know, through, through first their individual workshop process and then in sharing this story to the world, they interrupted that and they created a space where they not only do they step into like a, their own agency, admittedly, you know, under the pretext of the theater. So, you know. It's important that it be theater, right? It's not like a sit-in. They could have done that too. Um, but it, if it's theater, then there's this theatrical frame at work. And so everybody can go, ha, 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 it's just theater. You know, yeah. consequences are not the same. But we, the message is, is powerful and impactful. Um, and it utilizes that the, the fiction of the, the play to make an important point that, um, that they what they wanted to do in this instance is is transform culture through narrative and that's yeah. what they do the mm -hmm. theater is the mechanism and theater is important because you know many women behind bars they have like a sixth or eighth grade education they are not going to be reading you know many of the black feminist books that would address this issue that yeah. um, might be available to uh, to other audiences um they're not going to yeah they're or even to high school students because their libraries are just replete with terrible stuff censorship mm -hmm. right they're not but they're having these they conversations. can't even have those books sometimes at all can't even have them mm -hmm. can't even have them can't even have those books so um but they are these are their life experiences and so using performance using um theater uh with because it relies on um on dialogue on song on dance on movement on the visual is a really powerful way of engaging people with different levels of like literacy or straight up confidence in their like writing ability to um to in a in an important conversation and this one is about yeah really like addressing a a, a violation a wound in the at the facility so and no the facility is not like an it's, it's not a living breathing body but but uh, this is they were doing cultural repair they're doing institutional mm. repair and that's what they taught me is that you know self-repair is um healing uh, theater as a as a healing practice can help the, create the conditions for self-repair and that repair can be individual it can be familial in some instances 
It can be um, institutional or it can be broader, more cultural side of intervention. And some of the, the, the last couple chapters of the book are people who take the experiences that they had um, behind bars and have stepped into the public sphere in order to shift uh, cultural national yeah. dialogue about who is behind bars, why they are there, and whether or not they matter. I think I consider themselves part of a tremendous movement that's yeah. been happening over the last 30 years um, explicitly. I mean, but that goes back to the beginning when the first facilities were, were instituted um, in order to shift na narrative. And because when you shift narrative, you shift people's thinking. And if you can shift people's thinking, then you can shift public policy. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's so true. Wow. Thank you so much, Lisa. This is such a rich conversation. Are we at the end? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Thank you so much. Thank um, you so much, Malcolm, no, for the opportunity. You. I mean, I learned, I mean, I read the whole book, but I still learned so much just from this conversation and, and talking to you who actually, I'm sure not everything made it into this book, but to hear more about, I guess, us exchanging thoughts and opinions and our um, reflections on it as well. I mean, when we talked about the pink dress and them um, protecting their, their culture that they had, you know, I didn't even think about that as I was reading. And so I'm, I'm, my mind is going in so many different places. So I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and um, I'm excited to, to share this work with other people. If nothing else, I want people to walk away with, um, you know, the knowledge that that blackness, black culture is not the problem. Mm -hmm. It is not the cause of criminality, mm -mm. that it has been criminalized. Right. But, uh, you know, the people who are, they often say that, uh, I forgot who said this, but there's that expression that the people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And the work of these mm. black women artists, um, or people who work with them, who utilize Black expressive cultural practices like song and dance, signifying, testifying, yeah. witnessing, that they have so much to teach us about how the system operates and how we might change it, how we might change it, how we might change our culture, how we might think about human life and human conflict differently, that it needs to be attended to. And so yeah, the book is designed to, you know, not only preserve, but to help to circulate their genius. Because okay. I, I think there are lessons in there for all of us. Oh, there they are many lessons yeah. over for, for <laughs> us. <laughs> and I <laughs> learned, I mean, what we do at Pit America is, um, at least in the prison justice writing program, it can get heavy at times working directly with writers who are incarcerated. I shouldn't say directly because we don't go into prisons, but just especially because it's over correspondence. A lot of it is through letters. So we can't do more than just respond to them, you know, and if we can't get in touch with someone, we have to try to figure out why we can't get in touch with someone. And sometimes we don't get those answers. And, and so, but I, as much as it is, it can be difficult. I do learn so much about life in prison, about this thing we call the justice system. Um, mm -hmm. I learn about how people work around the conditions that they're in. I learn about their transformations. Um, I have a colleague, Jess, who opens all of the mail every day, and she's really one of the main people that are 
forming these connections and relations with writers who are inside. But then also she has a, um, a column that she writes called Unsealed, where she really profiles a lot of the mail that she gets and a lot of the letters and in a few instances has reconnected those writers with their families on the outside because families get a chance to see a different side of them. They get to see, you know, their growth, what their life is like. Um, and to know that they're doing, they're not just sitting around like they're producing artwork, like they're actual artists, they're actual writers. And so that's one of the rewarding parts about this work, even though how, how heavy it can be. Um, which is why I gravitated towards your work, because it does sit at that intersection of, of the civic sector and, and the arts, in which something that is inside it gets taken outside. Yeah, so thank you for bringing this thank to us. Thank you. It's definitely, this is not the kind of work that everyone can do, or or even that work can one can do all the time. Mm -hmm. But um, it's it's powerful work and um, essential work. Yeah. Essential. So thank you so much for joining us, Lisa, and I'll be talking to you soon. Thank you so much. Take care. This episode of Works of Justice was produced by Malcolm Tariq. Music used throughout this episode was created by B.L. Sherrell and Fury Young of Die Jim Crow Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about PEN America's prison and justice writing, please visit pen.org slash works of justice. That's P-E-N dot org slash works of justice.